All right, we are returning this morning to our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you should be able to find that on page 706. 706. It's been a couple of weeks, uh, but when we were last in Ecclesiastes, we looked at chapter 4, the whole chapter, where the author was focused on the intolerable loneliness of life under the sun. The need that we feel to have others around us. And if you remember, he showed us in that chapter four vignettes, pictures of different parts of the economic spectrum and how loneliness pervades all of it. If you have no money, if you have all the money in the world, all the power in the world, loneliness is part of the curse, part of the fall. We are severed from each other and from him. And in the midst of all of that, he reminded us that we actually do need each other, that we were meant to be together, that, that that lonely feeling is not a lie, it's the truth, that we do need to support each other. Our passage this morning starts pretty close to exactly where I ended that sermon a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the idea that flows necessarily from the author's reflections in chapter 4, uh, though it might not seem like that right at first, turning from loneliness that we experience throughout our lives to worship the right uh, approach to the Lord. Now, anytime we open God's Word, as I say, I say this every week, anytime we open God's Word together, we need His Spirit among us. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray and remain standing as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your Word that sends your truth into our lives, that breaks into our world and reveals yourself to us by it. And yet, Lord, we would, if you do not restrain our sin, we would absolutely twist it to mean what we want it to mean. And so we need your spirit. We pray that you would bless us by being present among us today. Restrain our sin. Open our, our eyes, our minds, that we would understand. Soften our hearts, that we would repent. That we would believe, that we would apply faithfully this your word. We pray that you would be glorified in the reading and the preaching of it, and not me, not us, but you alone would receive the, the, the praise for it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is ephemerality or vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers, flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You see it. The story is told of a businessman who was late for an important meeting, couldn't find a parking space. 
Maybe some of you have been there circling the block over and over again, probably not in Brigham, but you know, someplace. Circling the block, trying to find a parking space, looking at the clock ticking by, stressing out about it all. And finally, as this guy's circling the block, he gets so desperate that finally, uncharacteristically, he prays. He decides he's gonna ask God for help. So he looks up to heaven and he says, Lord, take pity on me. If you find me a parking space, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. And not only that, I'll give up drinking. Well, lo and behold, miraculously, a parking spot appears. The guy looks up again and says, never mind, I found one. <laughs> Fran Tarkenton. Some of you may remember, uh, he was a quarterback for the Vikings and the New York Giants, uh, led his uh, team to three different Super Bowls, was elected to the All-Pro team a bunch of times, won the league MVP at least once. Uh, one ranking that I ran into this week play, ranked him as the seventh most <coughs> valuable quarterback and 11th most valuable player overall in NFL history. Of course, he's hardly a, a household name now because he retired the year that I was born. But he still does some commentating and things like that. And, and about 10 years ago, he wrote an article that received national attention in which he lambasted himself and his fellow players, uh, his other athlete friends, for their shallow prayers. Here's what he wrote. He said, my forays into hoping for divine intervention didn't work out. I prayed fervently before each of the three Super Bowls we Minnesota Vikings played in. We played the Dolphins, we played the Steelers, we played the Raiders. And I was sure that God would be on our side for the game against the Raiders. After all, they were the villains of the league. It's hard to believe they had more Christians on their team than we saintly Vikings did. We lost. Before every game, no matter what team I was on at the time, the coach would always ask the most devout player to say a prayer. This would happen after we'd already been out warming up. So we'd all seen the crowd. We were in full uniform, complete with the eye black dubbing, uh, 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 doubling as war paint. And the intensity of the week built up to a near frenzy in the locker room. Then we'd pray for victory. And after this moment of quiet devotion, the team would all shout in unison, now let's go kill those guys. We are all tempted to take our prayer life really the whole of our walk with Christ, as something of a given, to take it shallowly, flippantly, as if it were of no weight, of no matter at all. But that simply will not do. Our passage this morning is unique in Ecclesiastes. It is, I believe, the only time in the whole book that the author addresses the worshiping life of the nation directly. The only place in the book that he refers to the temple and the sacrifices that were offered there. And his aim is very similar to the prophets. If you've read any of the prophets, you know that they, they call for greater faithfulness to God from the people in their worship in particular. But where the prophets call down invective on the hypocrites and on the vicious, the leadership who abuse their authority and feed on those who they're supposed to be feeding. You've been with us through Isaiah at all. You'll know that, that Isaiah doesn't mince words, right? Uh, you know some of what that looks like. But where the prophets target flagrant violations of the nation, our author here, as one commentary put it, targets the well-meaning person who likes a good song and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with <coughs> half an ear or less, never really quite gets around to doing what he volunteered to do for God. We feel that pull, don't we? The temptation 
The fact, in fact, over the last 50 or 60 years, our society has systematically reduced worship to being all about me. All about what I get out of it. And if you're not getting what you want out of worship, just head on down the street to the next church and you can get what you want there. We have almost completely removed any sense the transcendence of God in favor, favor either of folksy spectacle, folksy, folksy entertainment on the one hand, or gaudy spectacle, big show on the other hand. Yet we should not think this is a new temptation. It feels new to us because we've seen it grow recent years, but it's not a new temptation. Maybe we've been more inclined toward it than in other eras of church history in the context of specific sins, the specific cultural context of the mid-1900s. It's not new. Solomon describes the basic flavor that we're experiencing now here, maybe a thousand years before Christ's birth. The point of temptation to irreverence and immaturity before the Lord Precisely the point that the author touches on, touched on last time. That the point of the spear is our loneliness. We are desperately lonely most of our lives. We respond to the Lord's invitation to communion with Him in worship by trying to tell Him what that must be and how it will go. He says, come, commune with me. And we say, okay, I will, but only if. Point A, B, C, D, E, E. It must be pleasing to me, Lord. It must not challenge me, not stretch me. It certainly must not call me to repent. I don't want to have to change, Lord. This passage gives us both great hope in our loneliness and also a dire warning in our flippancy. Because true depth of our loneliness comes from being, as one author put it, one of the most sacrilegious and blasphemous church cultures in the history of Christianity. A stark statement. Our worshiping life is the center, the heart of any hope we have of true connection. But to receive that connection, to actually engage with that connection with the Lord, we must come humbly. We must recognize the two most fundamental truths there are in the world. Are you ready? Here it is. These are the two truths that absolutely have to be held to. There is a God. You ain't him. Amen. Or, as the author puts it here, God is in heaven and you are on earth. There is a God. It ain't you. Now look, I get that this is uncomfortable. As a culture, we value equality. Fairness may be higher than anything else. But when we come to the Lord, if we assume a posture of equality with him, we are in grave danger. Wholly apart from what we say, if we act as if there is no God, we are in even more deadly peril. There's, in this passage, there is both an explicit warning against our sinful attitudes toward the Lord, but also an implicit promise to assuage our deepest hearts, the emptiness, the loneliness that comes to define us. So let's look first at the warning uh, in its different pieces there, and then we'll come back to the promise of fellowship uh, at the end. Guard your steps, in verse 1, Solomon says. Be careful when you go to the house of God. When I was in my late teens, uh, mom, you know, you always have chores you got to do. My mom asked me at this point to clean the gutters in the backyard. 
uh, along the back of the house. You know, this is a pretty typical chore, right? So I get the ladder out, uh, and I started at one end and started working my way down these gutters to get them clean. But you gotta understand, to really get the picture, you gotta understand the way my parents' house is built. It's on a hill. So at one end, at the top of the hill, it's one story, it's, you know, eight, nine, ten feet, whatever, off the ground, and, you know, the gutters are there, and it's easy. At the other end, the hill slopes down and it's closer to 25 feet from the gutter to the ground. Additionally, on top of that, near the downhill end, the power line comes into the house. So I started at the easy end, right? Uh, so we're going to start on the, the low end and work, we'll work our way down to the far end and uh, you know, get there eventually. But as I got close to the power lines, I found myself slowing down. Being extra super careful, of course, but also just hesitating. Standing there on the ladder, looking at part of the job still to do on the other side of the line and, and around the line because it came in just over the, the gutter there. And it took me a while to recognize that what I was feeling was fear. Not a type of fear that I'd felt before, not the anxious, not in my stomach type of fear. That was familiar. This was just an awareness that that's a lot of power. And I'm a long way, on, I'm on a metal ladder 25 feet off the ground with bare concrete below me. This could go really badly. Now, hopefully that shows wisdom rather than cowardice, but here we are either way. In a sense, that combined awareness, both of the power and the danger, is what Solomon is calling us to here. Solomon refers in the first verse to the sacrifice of fools, and in verse 7 he concludes, God is the one you must fear. And this is the key to the passage. In Psalm 14, the psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And this is almost a technical definition of Fool <laughs> When the Bible rebukes the fool, it is rebuking unbelief. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The other end of the spectrum, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the central defining factor in all, all of human life. The single reality, this single reality splits the human race into two camps. The wise who fear the Lord and the foolish who don't believe in him at all. Of course, we know it's not that simple, from our perspective at least. We can't read it, we can't read anyone's hearts directly. We all all we have are outward actions, out, uh, outward attitudes that, that we can see. We can't read the heart the way the Lord can. But actions flow from them. the things that we do flow out of our hearts overflow. At the same time, our actions also influence our heart, grow our heart, repeat things. And make them re reinforced, I should say. We approach God flippantly, turning our worship into empty ceremony or leaving the ceremony behind entirely just to bring emptiness before the Lord. We are reinforcing the emptiness of our worship, even while we think we are being faithful. This is the sacrifice of fools, and it is more wicked in God's eyes than refusing to worship at all. They are doing evil. And they think they're doing good. They don't even know it. Now, I'm spending some time here because this is such an important piece to understanding what's going on here in this section. We demand, when we demand that worship suits us, that pleases us, that it scratches the itch that we feel, it's no longer about God at all. It is, in fact, idolatry, plain and simple. And we think it's about God, right? 
But just because an idol is called Jesus Christ doesn't mean it is, in fact, the God of the Bible. We have kind of special insight into that reality in this area, don't we, here in Utah? We have a clearer picture of that in many places. Those who make worship about themselves and their preferences instead of about God and his preferences are offering the sacrifice of fools. They may continue to offer the prescribed sacrifices, but in doing it for themselves, for their own benefit, their own preferences, they are functional atheists. They are acting as if God wasn't real. The sacrifices that they offer were purely for their own benefit and not to worship the Lord. And that's bad. But it's also probably not where most of us are, right? or at least think we are. Most of us do honestly believe in God. We want to please him with our worship. Maybe you're thinking this is kind of a harsh message so far to preach here, and so you're not entirely wrong. Look at what Solomon lumps into this same category of false worship, this same sacrifice of fools. Those, verses 2 and 4, who maybe come with good intentions, but a wrong or insufficient knowledge of God. Those who treat the infinite, eternal, immortal, all-powerful God they treat him like anyone else, speaking without speaking to him without thought, without care, making promise to us, to promises to him, voluntary promises, and then not doing it. As if breaking the word to the Lord was a small thing. These people may think themselves to be faithful or as much as anyone is in the broken world, right? Well, I, I'm, I'm at least as good as most people. I'm fine. You know, I, I, I do what needs to be done mostly as much as anybody does. The reality is they're playing jump rope with a live electrical wire. Again, fear of the Lord is not a cringing, shaking, I'm afraid of the dark kind of fear. Rather, it is the fear that arises when you realize that this is the creator of the heavens and the earth with whom you're dealing. He is God, and you are not. And it may seem like coming too casually might not be that big a deal. After all, I've said many times, we are those who have the right to go to the king and wake him up, metaphorically speaking, wake him up in the middle of the night to ask for a glass of water. We are his beloved children. But now I'm saying that we come too casually, so which is it? John Frank said once, when we sin, when we pretend to be our own boss, when we claim to be the final authority in place of God, there is a massive difference between, on the one hand, the king's beloved son, who knows that daddy is way stronger than he is, who knows that daddy is way more powerful than he is, but he trusts his daddy's love, and so runs up to him in delight. On the other hand, the man who believes this kingdom is a ten-pot, penny-ante-nowheresville, and the king of this kingdom is not worth the air that he's breathing. Both will be casual with the king, but in massively different ways. Be the first. Be comfortable with him despite his infinite power because you trust his love, his gentleness toward you, his child. Don't be the one who denies by your actions that God is powerful and all, able to defend his pride. And that's precisely what's going on here. If you don't believe God's power, you won't take care. It won't matter. You can say whatever you want. You won't 
Take care in your speaking. You'll be rash, speaking without thought, speaking in haste, speaking without knowledge. I can't believe I'm telling the story. Once when I was a, uh, a Boy Scout, 13, 14, 15 years old, whatever, uh, we were out in the woods somewhere where our troop was, and I was talking, I was excited. I started learning a little bit of rock climbing recently and was all excited about it, and I was talking to one of the adults who'd come along, who I didn't really know, uh, but he'd come along with our troop, and I was talking to him about this, this rock that we could see up on the mountains near us, and how, how, you know, if I had the right gear, if I had, you know, a bolt gun and, and the right kind of this gear and that equipment and the other thing, then I could totally climb that wall. It was pure nonsense. I mean, it was, I, he, he was crazy. I knew the names of the equipment, but nothing else. I had no idea what I was talking about. And he humored me. He was polite about it. I found out later that he was one of the top climbing instructors in the state. Oops. As the old saying goes, it is better to keep silent and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. How much worse when we approach God with the empty bravado of a 14, 15-year-old kid. Even more so when we make a vow to God and then don't keep it. Now, to understand what's going on with this, we've got to understand a little bit of the historical context. Uh, the vows mentioned here were not an ordinary part of the worship life of the, the nation. They were entirely voluntary, over and above the normal <laughs> environments. Um, it wouldn't have been uh, just the, you know, if you get me out of this, then I'll type thing. That's, that's foolish, but that's not what's going on here. And he's also not talking about sedition aside. It's not talking about sinful vows. You remember the guy who's, who vowed, I will sacrifice whatever meets me when it come, you know, come, first comes out of my house when I get home because you've given me this victory. And what came out of his house was his daughter. Sinful vows are not for keeping, they're for repenting of. That's not what's being talked about. These vows would have been a formal promise made before witnesses, usually before the priests and none in the temple itself. Often it would be an additional sacrifice in response to the Lord's provision, a sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving, not prompted by sin, not required in the law. It was a big deal, but it wasn't required. It wasn't even expected. Entirely voluntary. But what would then happen if your circumstances changed after you made the vow, but before you fulfilled it. That's what's going on with the messenger in verse 6. The picture is there, there's, you know, an underpriest whatever coming to just check up. Hey, you made this vow a couple of months ago. We hadn't heard from you in a while. What's going on? Are you planning to keep this vow? How, how's this happening? And you're responding with, oh, oh yeah, that, that, that was a mistake. I didn't, I didn't really mean it. Sure, did God won't hold me to that. He knows my financial situation and how I'm struggling right now. God takes vows seriously. In Psalm 15, the psalmist is describing a blameless man and includes that he is one, quote, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He made a vow, and then as it played out, it was going to be to his harm, and he did it anyway because he had vowed. Even though his circumstances have changed, he still trusts that the Lord will provide and he will fulfill the vow that he swore. Better never to have vowed at all because it wasn't required. Better never to have vowed at all than to make the vow and not keep it. 
And Max, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In the early church, uh, in this, this very early period in Acts, they, they, had, they had everything in common. Uh, and what you see is a number of people would sell properties, sell things that they had, and then give the proceeds to the church to care for those who had less. When required, it was very clearly not an, an obligation. Uh, and, but apparently, in the doing of that, some received honor and uh, laud for it. And because Ananias and Sapphira sold the property and gave some, but not all, of the proceeds to the apostles. But they said they were giving all. Peter rebukes them, and they die. Not because they didn't give all of the money from the sale. Peter is very clear in his rebuke. You, the property was yours. You weren't required to sell it. Once you sold it, the money was yours. You weren't required to give it. What happened, though, is you said you gave all of it, and you lied. Lied in an attempt to gain standing, to gain reputation, but out of a heart steeped in selfishness and unbelief. Better never to have vowed at all than to vow and not do it. When we approach the Lord, we come in the fear of the Lord, or we come in sin, bringing a curse on ourselves for dishonoring Him with our worship. The very thing that we intend to honor Him in most highly. That's the one. Take care. Be on guard. Guard your steps when you come to worship the Lord. The warning and it's sharp. But we can't end without seeing the implicit promise here. The, the warning is explicit, right? It's clear. The promise is implicit to assuage our deepest hearts. And as I said, chapter 4 is all about being cut off since the fall from other people and especially from the Lord. And we feel that being cut offness in our loneliness and our need to connect with people and yet the friction that prevents us from connecting we were created for community. And as much as this is a warning against coming flippantly, we cannot miss that the implicit promise here is that we have access to the almighty God of the universe in worship. Yes, we must treat him with respect and the honor to, work, to which he is due, is due and deserves. But he welcomes us into his presence. We are not cut off anymore in Christ. It is good, verse 1, to draw near and listen. He speaks to us. Else we wouldn't have anything to listen to. Do not be rash with your speech, verse 2, but you can speak to the creator of the heavens and the earth directly. You don't have to go through some sort of saintly intermediary or find the right angel to talk to. You can talk to God himself directly. And you can be assured that he will hear you. Now, sure, he may not give you what you want, right? We've talked about that before. Our, the prayer isn't magic words that obligate God, to twist God's arm, that make him do what we want him to do. That's not what prayer is at all. We understand that on a practical level, if nothing else. You pray for things and hope for them, but you know that God doesn't, isn't required to give you what you pray for. But we can go to him in prayer knowing that he hears and knowing that he acts through those prayers. He hears you, Christian. The God of the universe hears your prayer. <coughs> Fumbling though it may be, 
Not the right words, though it may be, right? We get that when none of us have the right words. But he hears your prayer. He delights when you, his child, come running to him. Even if you don't honor him the way that the emissaries from another nation might, he's your daddy. He delights to enjoy, to have you enjoy his presence and to have you, to speak to you and with you. None of this would be possible at all if he hadn't come to us first. Apart from Jesus coming to redeem us, to buy us out of our sinful folly, we would have no access at all. No hope of being heard, no hope of anything at all, but instant death if we came in contact with the holy God of the universe. And he has redeemed a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and culture and nation and people and subgroup and, 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 and. He has made a way for you, Christian, to enter the holy of holies, to meet God face to face without terror, but with true respect, the fear of the Lord. Christian, though this world is cold and hard and it often hurts, nevertheless, if you are his you are not alone. For the eternal God of the universe is with you even now. You are in Him, in Christ. You are not alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us.